The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Robbie Shilliam. We talked about his article, Enoch Powell, Britain's First Neoliberal Politician, which appeared in the New Political Economy Journal. We spoke about how the notoriously racist Powell, far from being a political throwback, was in fact a key figure in the emergence of neoliberalism and Thatcherism, and whose politics presaged the Brexit project. We also chatted about how Powell, in contrast to many Conservatives, became hostile to nostalgia for the British Empire, and how he believed that an independent Britain, neither ruling an empire nor becoming part of the embryonic European Union, would find its proper place in the world. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Taking a Long Look, Essays on Culture, Literature and Feminism in Our Time by Vivian Gornick. Growing up in the Bronx amongst communists and socialists, Vivian Gornick became a legendary writer for Village Voice, chronicling the emergence of the feminist movement in the 1970s. For nearly 50 years, her essays, written with her characteristic clarity of perception and vibrant prose, have explored feminism and writing, literature and culture, politics and personal experience. Drawing on writing from the course of her career, Her latest collection of essays illuminates one of the driving themes behind Gornick's work, that the painful process of understanding oneself is what binds us to the larger world. Taking a long look, Essays on Culture, Literature and Feminism in Our Time is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Robbie Shilliam is Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University. He's the author of Race and the Undeserving Poor, From Abolition to Brexit, And his most recent book is Decolonising Politics, which is out now from Polity Press. So at the start of the article, and referencing Aaron Kanani's work, you write that Britain's first neoliberal politician was not Margaret Thatcher, nor even Keith Joseph, but rather the country's most accomplished racist, Enoch Powell. And I suppose reading that, part of what's particularly striking about that claim, perhaps, is that racism is often, especially in liberal circles, treated as something that is atavistic and anachronistic. Whereas here, you're you're situating Powell as a, as a thoroughly modern figure. And as you go on to argue, Powell is not modern in spite of his racism, but rather that's a constitutive part of it. But before we address the issue of race more directly, could you explain the ways in which Powell's economic positions actually fit quite well with the standard descriptions of neoliberalism? So those that emphasise the superiority of the, of the market as an information processor in contrast to state-directed economic planning, and also how Powell influenced the economic thinking of, of ministers in the first Thatcher government, which is perhaps not that well known. So I guess what I would say is that, or the provocation I would give is, we could do a genealogy of neoliberalism working through eugenics, Victorian era eugenics. And that provides a slightly different kind of gloss on the contemporaneity of neoliberalism, at least as an ideology. 
in contrast to a genealogy of neoliberalism, which treats it as neoliberal, i.e., you know, looking back at Adam Smith and all these dudes and their their ideas about a liberal market and then updating it with something which is neoliberal, right? If you run it through eugenics, you get a slightly different take. And the reason why I think that's important is because, to my mind, certainly from the mid-1800s onwards, liberal political economy was always attuned to the growth of scientific racism and of eugenics. And part of this is to do with a distinction between what people came to call social Darwinism and eugenics, which are not the same thing. So social Darwinism would basically say, you know, let nature take its course and, you know, who dies, dies and and who lives, lives, right? And that's always parsed both as a kind of racial category and also as a kind of individual category of character development and genetic heredity, right? Now, one might think that neoliberalism is more accordant with social Darwinism, but I don't think it is. I think it's more accordant with eugenics because what eugenics said was, if we don't do something, if we don't intervene, nature is going to ensure that the weakest, the poorest, the dirtiest, the most undeserving of us are going to breed and take over and basically outbreed the more deserving of us. And so eugenics was an intervention into nature. And part of its intervention was to say we need to put in place measures, negative and positive, to enhance the reproductive possibilities of those who accord to the particular values we ascribe to good governance. And those values were basically all set around what I would call orderly independence, meaning that you, and it's very patriarchal, you know, you took care of your own family's business and you accepted responsibility for that, right? You would not be dependent, but neither would your independence be anarchical or be revolutionary. So you knew your place in the patriarchal class and racial hierarchy and you held to your place and holding to your place was what would actually help the whole race and nation reproduce itself and succeed. So what you have in there is all this stuff that we today associate with neoliberalism. It's making of the self, the entrepreneurial self, the crafting of individualism, but also with a certain moralistic element to it. Yeah. So for me, eugenics is the way in which we have a proper genealogy of neoliberalism. And eugenics is always linked to empire and by the 1940s the prospect of Britain losing its empire but having to retain its its eugenic strength and that's where Powell comes in and I think that's where Keith Joseph comes in and I think even today with all the um, the rubbish around Covid earlier on in the in the in the pandemic Boris Johnson flirting with herd immunity talking about what kind of NHS could save us when, of course, NHS was full of non-white, non-English doctors and nurses. So even today, we've got these legacies, yeah? So I think Enoch Powell, you can situate between them two bookends.
Typically in discussion around race and migration and the Conservative Party, it's often assumed that those on, on the right of the Tory party, that they are always inclined to be nostalgic for empire and, and defenders of empire. And yet you point out that it's emphatically not the case regarding Enoch Powell. So could you explain why he was opposed to nostalgia for the empire and how that opposition to empire was entwined with his opposition to economic planning and his advocacy of an identifiably neoliberal way of thinking about human subjectivity? I mean, initially, he's quite for empire, and, and it's especially to do with his own personal experiences to do with India. But certainly by the 50s, he's turned against it. And part of it is because he sees empire as actually sullying the English genus. And this genus is both racially and culturally one of orderly independence. And in fact, Powell, like many people in the you know, Anglo-Saxonists in the 19th century thought, people like Woodrow Wilson as well, thought that the Anglo-Saxon genus was distinct and unique because only it produced individuals who were of orderly independence, who would stick to their place in the hierarchies. So I'm talking about workers here, right? Who would stick to their place in the hierarchy, yet would not depend or seek dependence on the higher-ups to hold their position. Now, what Powell saw in empire was two things happening, right? One was that the influx of peoples from non-Anglo-Saxons within the empire, and here he's especially actually worried about Indian people, not, not, not black people actually, but Indian people, that they brought with them a certain communalistic politics which was destructive of orderly independence. So that's partly to do with his, all this, you know, that's the more recognisable stuff about being swamped by this, that and the other, right? That's changing the shape, the genus of, of England, right? But the other part of it is that he saw that the attempt to preserve empire would actually induce in economic policy a whole series of dependencies, right? Which would then mitigate against England doing what it does best. So, you know, he goes back and he says, we were never, he says, the workshop of the world. He says, we were never the leader of the globe. He says, this fantasy that, you know, once we were the leaders of the global economy, once we were the workshop of the world, this fantasy, he says, makes us try to live beyond our means. And what we need to do is find our natural place in the market in the global market, and then we defend that. So that's also partly why he wanted to get rid of empire and any nostalgia towards empire, because it actually mitigated against following the, the you know market logic, right? And at the same time, induced dependence, which was ill-fitting for orderly independence. In other words, he associated that with welfare. And I suppose it's a, it's a welfareism both at home, but also a kind of international welfareism in the sense of defending a protectionist economic unit with all the economic planning that was part of that. Right. And the amount of debt that you would have to incur, public debt you'd have to incur to do that, especially when you've got the sterling crisis after the Second World War, you, you know, you've got the disintegration of the Commonwealth, at least economically speaking. And of course, that's why he, he saw entry into the EEC as a kind of neo-imperial dependency because it's this would be exactly the same thing that the EEC would make us live beyond our means and of course the interesting thing here and if we were in the 80s or the 90s this wouldn't make sense to us right but the interesting thing with Powell is that he did not actually believe that the principal 
purpose of economic policy was economic growth. Not by any means, right? That was not the principal means because he saw economic growth by the wrong policy mechanisms would induce dependency. So uh, very much a Brexit so now, theme, right? Thank you. So in the in the eighties and the nineties, we'd be saying he can't be a neoliberal. What what the hell are you talking about, right? But of course now, what was what was Brexit? Was what was all the neoliberals and the you know the populist neoliberals talking about with Brexit? They were saying it doesn't matter. We will sacrifice our position. We will sacrifice our economic growth. We will sacrifice this and the other so long as we can be free and independent. Blah, 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 blah. And and of course, all that was linked up with a, a, a racialized understanding of Englishness. Now, is that to say that there isn't a imperial nostalgia for the white Commonwealth? Well, of course, there has been that, and these are always contending positions, right? I would dare to say that that nostalgia is far less harmful than the actual ideology that Powell espoused, and which I think Brexit has actually put back in in gear, because what it does is it conflates Powell's agenda conflates global restitution global justice for, you know, the imperial division of labour and its consequences, conflates that with welfareism as a morally decaying thing, right, with socialism and with internationalism. And where are we in the UK? That's where we are, right? And, and look at Keir Starmer, he's got nothing against that. He's basically played entirely into that. How do you get out of that box? You can't if you're in it. Yeah. Now, that to me is far more damaging than these fantasies about restarting empire, which are palpably bullshit and ain't going to go nowhere. Just on that point regarding Powell's attitude towards the European economic community as it then was, is his opposition to the EEC as racialized as it was in the case of the empire? Or, or do you think perhaps it's more tightly focused on economic questions of dirigism and, and state intervention in the economy? Or did he in fact see, say, the, the French and the Germans as inferior because of their commitment to those economic policies, which for him may perhaps have been an indicator of their supposed racial inferiority? So, I mean, the thing to think about with Enoch Powell, and in fact to do with most white nationalism, right, is that it's usually very unclear and illogical when it comes to other people. All of its exposition about politics, economy and morality is all to do with the white genus or with the Anglo-Saxon genus. So that's the thing to remember, right? It's fairly incohate when it comes to are the Poles white or are the French a different race to the British. It's fairly incohate with that, and that doesn't really matter. Because what drives it is a very strong idea about the exceptionalism of the Anglo-Saxon genus and its ability to craft and reproduce and hand down orderly independence, which is the kind of conservative kind of liberalism which you often see around the place, right? So that's the first thing to think about. And in that case, everything pertains to those forces which might degrade or sully the Anglo-Saxon genus. So when we're thinking about racialization with Powell, that's what we need to think about rather than think about, has he got a logical cartography of different races? Is Europe a different race and all that? doesn't really matter, right? That's not actually where the politics bite, yeah? So at least for Powell, right? So, you know, what did Powell say about the EEC? You said we needed a declaration of independence from the EEC. I can't remember if it was exactly those words, but basically what he was doing when he was saying that was using the words of Ian Smith in Rhodesia. Ian Smith in Rhodesia said 
you guys in Whitehall want to decolonize Southern Rhodesia? Never in a million years. We will have our unilateral declaration of independence and we will retain this apartheid system and we'll go it on our own. And Powell uses exactly that phrase on purpose, a unilateral declaration of independence from the EEC. So what you can see there is that in Rhodesia, what they're worried about is the sullying and degradation of the white settler population in Rhodesia when black Zimbabweans come to rule and then put in all their crazy socialist experiments and yeah, 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 yeah. Powell is rhetorically analogizing that for the preservation of the purity of the Anglo-Saxon race in England against the EC. So that's how you think about racialization, yeah? And when it comes to Powell and with a lot of white nationalism. And again, you know, there are other things which happen. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying it doesn't really help us to try and think about the typologies that he's using vis-a-vis -vis other nations and races. What is absolutely foundational is the purity of the Anglo-Saxons. If you think about what happens in the US at the moment, that's exactly what that is. So if Powell, as in your description of him, is, is both this quite modern figure, very much the sort of right-wing neoliberal that we see today who supports Brexit, and also someone who informed the politics of figures such as Margaret Thatcher and her economic policy advisors in that early neoliberal period, then where would you try and identify any particular break, if at all, where we have the emergence of the populist moment that our current era is so often described as? Because it seems to me that you're describing a lot more ideological continuity than many other people might suggest. I think that's right. And I don't mean to smooth it all over. And indeed, to also point out that New Labour are partially complicit in this as well, right? So neither is what I'm talking about a project simply of the right. Yeah, although it, it certainly has its bedrock there. There were moments like when New Labour came in and for a minute it seemed like they were going to embrace Bikku Parik, right? You know, he had this big thing about you know, a devolved and post-colonial national identity, which New Labour looked for a minute like they were going to actually accord to. And then suddenly after the, the riots in Burnley, the uprisings in Burnley and in the north in, when was it, 2000 or 2001, then they start to switch to what we now know as anti-Muslim racism, ideas about social cohesion. And by the end of their tenure, they were basically trying to get the leap on the UKIP language to preserve their electoral politics, right? So I'm not saying that it's a smooth history. But what I am saying is that this eugenics-framed political economy idea of the subject, the right subject, yeah, which is this Anglo-Saxon patriarch of orderly independence, right? That that subject is the staple of British politics. It frames British politics. I would say even from abolition, you know, to now, right? And it frames it in the way in which, you know, those who try to break out of it, you know, get comeuppances, right? And those who try to reform often end up reproducing that frame. And you would say that, that New Labour certainly did nothing to combat that? Well, there were moments when it looked like it was going to go different. And I think Corbyn was a slightly incohate attempt at trying to break that as well. Right. But I think where it places us now is, you know, if I'm looking at the UK from the US, and the US has got plenty of problems like we all know, right? But all I see in the UK right now is the end of ideas at least in the formal institutions of, of, of politics, right? It's the end of ideas because they got what they wanted. And what does that mean? <laughs> it means more neoliberalism, but far more just rampant and destructive than ever before. You know, it's, it's basically a, a 
kind of zombieism, right? A zombie Powellism. Because if you think about the neoliberals in the 60s and the 70s, even if you think about Powell, you know, what are they trying to do? They're trying to preserve the idea of a human, the properly human subject, right? They're trying to preserve it or they're trying to engineer a new. So they've got an idea about the stakes at play in the future. And they're thinking about how you change institutions and policies so that you reproduce a new human, yeah? Now, if you think about all these neoliberal populists from, you know, 2010s onwards, right, they're all the grandchildren of Thatcher and Reagan. And I would say this in the US too, right? They're all the grandchildren. They have no inclination or intellectual competency by which they are envisaging a reproduction of a new human subject. It's the end of days for them and it's a party and they don't care. And all they want to do is leverage leverage the hedge funds, leverage electoral politics. So that's where we are. You see what I mean? And, and, and we are like that because we have not seriously thought about this wider than party and wider than specific ideological assumption about what the proper subject of politics is for a Britain, which was always an imperial power, never a nation, and now is becoming a nation and can't figure out anything else. And that particular positing of this notion of, of the right and proper English subject as self-reliant and entrepreneurial in spirit and so on, at this stage, how conducive is, is all that to the aims of these politicians at this particular moment? Because it feels like we're in a, you know, a, a very different situation from the 1980s when that entrepreneurial story seemed, at least intuitively, more plausible to people in a situation where it did seem feasible that if you, know, you worked hard, you could buy your own home, you could do well for yourself and so on, however accurate or not that was. But now in such an incredibly rontierized economy where, where the prospects for, for young people in particular are, are absolutely dire, do you still think there's much mileage left in that story? I think there's plenty of mileage. And, and the reason is this, because even in the 80s, you know, that kind of, in quotes, neoliberal hegemony was entirely racialized, entirely gendered. You know, Thatcher broke from Powell to the extent that she believed that, you know, you could induce in black people, black people in Britain, a orderly independence. And indeed, if one thinks about, you know, Stephen Lawrence and the way in which that catalyzed even the Daily Mail, <laughs> to call out racist, institutional racism. Part of the reason why that, that horrific death gained traction was because you could narrate it as, you know, an upwardly aspiring, orderly, independent black family, which were trying to be English, right? English in the sense I was talking about with Pat, yeah? So that's how Thatcher broke from Pal, but she didn't break from anything else. And exactly in the 80s, you get, you know, this ever more acute, criminalization and demonization of black people as being unable to be orderly and independent. And the same with the South Asian population, right? And of course, all of that was incredibly patriarchal. You know, Thatcher's thing about, you know, there's no such thing about society except individuals and families and communities which work together a la Edmund Burke's little platoons, right? But in an orderly fashion. So my point would be to say that this has always been there, right? Now, what might have changed? And I would say this is from the mid-late 80s, early 90s. What has changed, and I don't want to use the word privilege, right, is that there was a benefit to your whiteness, even if it was unevenly distributed, even if it didn't change hierarchies. But there was a benefit to your whiteness 
in terms of work conditions and wages and security from the you know late 40s up until probably the mid 80s mid 80s late 80s right that benefit is no longer structurally there right now there's racism don't get me wrong but the state the economy right and labor do not work hand in step as they did to reproduce that white benefit you know from the 40s up until the mid 80s do you get what I'm saying? Make an important point. It's not that racism isn't there anymore. It's not that if you've got a surname which sounds African or, or Indian, you're not going to get you know the same kind of jobs and all that. Uh, that is all there. But the lockstep triangulation between the state, labour, and the economy, which existed, that's gone, and that's neoliberalism. That's gone. So what now remains of your white benefit is entirely a ephemeral and vicarious sense that you are still most important and you're not you know you're not most important in terms of it's not about equality it's why people scratch their head and say with boris and with with donny but don't they realize that you know your kids are never going to go around and play with boris's kids or donny's kids yeah of course but that's absolutely not the point that's not where the, the, the where the vicarious benefit comes the vicarious benefit comes that in the pecking order you know you are above these other degenerates. That's it. And it's a purely vicarious one now. And Boris will, will kick other people in the face rather than you. Right. And and they don't and people don't care about that because it's a, it's not about it's not about I want what Boris has. It's about I don't want these others to have what has been promised to me. A sort of very low expectations kind of racism. Right. And that's why the whole thing about this vicarious white benefit. When you talk about it on a national level, it's all posited upon what public services and, and social security, because that's all that's left by which to funnel this vicarious sense of your white benefit is that these other bastards can't have what you have been promised by your betters and your superiors. And and tell me, tell me what's going to tell me what levers are going to change that at the moment. How is it that, that the Tories are still on 40 percent after a year of annihilation? You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.